we're uh, studying the patriarchs, and we're in the in the important uh, reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. I want to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 33, uh, just a little reminder of um, what has happened in the first 11 verses of chapter 33. Esau and Jacob were reconciled, but that reconciliation still indicates a little bit of a lack of trust on each man's part, especially Jacob, which we'll see in a minute. But before we get into that, I think we can both, not both, all agree that the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau is astonishing. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing reconciliation. Because as you remember, when we left Esau, as Jacob was fleeing north uh, to Patamaram, he said to him, I will kill you. And now we saw how God dealt with Jacob, and uh, the words I use where God broke Jacob in Genesis 32 of his self-will, of his conniving and deceiving, gave him a new covenant name, the name Israel. And now Jacob meets Esau, which we studied in the class last week. They are reconciled. Jacob insists that Esau accept those 500 animals that he had sent ahead as uh, part of the blessing that Jacob had realized as uh, the firstborn. Remember, he was not literally the firstborn, but he was given that role by God and um, attained it, unfortunately, through conniving. So in verse 12, now we have, how far is this reconciliation going to go, is the question. How far is this reconciliation going to be affected in terms of these two men, their families, their herds, their servants, and so on? And so we read, then Esau said, let us go on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said, my Lord knows that the children are frail, the nursing flocks and herds are a care of me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Sarah. Remember, Ser, Ser is the name of Edom. It's an earlier name of Edom. Edom is named after Esau. So this is a this is a bit curious because if you if you look at the map and if you're following that, they're on page 23. I mean, they are just on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, Jacob was he's crossed over the Jordan River. They're now on the west side, and they're they're there. So it's it's a little bit interesting. What is, what is Esau really proposing to him? It sounds like he's proposing to him, you follow me down to Edom. You follow me down to Sarah. But you have about a hundred mile journey. That is probably why Jacob says what he says, because again, you can look on the map, but you know, they're right here, the Jordan, and right here for him to go into the promised land is about four miles. And so it would seem odd if Jacob's responding to him, well, my children are young. It's going to be a hard journey for them. The animals, it's going to be a hard journey for them. Some of them are pregnant. It's, it's the time when the animals are giving birth. And he just pushes back on that. So are you following what I'm saying? What he seems, he, Esau seems to be saying to Jacob is, follow me down to Edom. And Jacob's pushing back. No, it's, that's too long of a journey. I, I don't want to do that. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. 
But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. That's Jacob speaking. That Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, south, a hundred miles. Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, which is immediately to the west, and built himself a house and made booze, temporary shelters for his livestock. Therefore, he came and called the name of the place Sukkot. So again, I, if you do this and you want to do it, if you look at the map on page 23, you can see in the enlargement here, you can see where Sukkot is. And you can, I mean, you see Jacob's going about four miles west, and Esau's going 100 miles south to Seir, or now what's going to become known as Edom, named after Jacob. So these two brothers are in effect agreeing to separate. And so Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem in verse 18, which is in the land of Canaan on his way from Padamaram and the camp for the city. Now, the next sentence is going to be important for the next chapter. So these two men have departed. There's a bit of tentativeness. There's a bit of concern by Jacob, whether he wants to follow Edom or excuse me, Esau down to Edom. So he does not do that. As far as we know, with one short exception coming up, they really don't uh, connect with one another again. Esau will develop his family, his really what becomes the country of Edom. And of course, Jacob, Jacob will now settle permanently in the, in the promised land. The other thing to note on that map, if you, if you want to look, is he goes to Shechem. And that's again, a little bit farther west of Sukkot. Now, I hope you remember this. Shechem is really an important city, a town, village, really. That's where Abraham first settled in Shechem and built an altar to worship God there. Isaac had been there, and Jacob is now going back there. So the reason he goes to Shechem is an historical reason, a family reason, a covenant reason. So are you with me? So it's, it's just, it, it's important that the text is telling God is doing this in, in his word, but telling us that Jacob is choosing to go to Shechem. And he, he's in the, and the text says he's in the land of Canaan. <laughs> and this is the promised land that God has made to him. So Edom has, Esau has gone south down to Edom. Jacob is now in the promised land. The reconciliation has occurred, but they are not going to live together in the same land. So that separation is now um, final, I think you could say. But the next verse, verse 19, is extremely important for the context of chapter 34. So we're done now with the Esau-Jacob narrative, the Esau-Jacob story. It's over. Now the focus is on how we start to transition to Joseph. Now, we're not quite there yet, but we're going to start that transition to Joseph. Because a question has to be answered. How is, the clan, how is the family of Jacob with his 12 sons going to develop into the nation of Israel? Are they going to do it in Canaan? Because Jacob is now back in Canaan. He's back in the promised land. Are, are they going to develop their, their land, the nation of Israel, which God had promised to Abraham because he's in the land again? And so the answer to that is no. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel are going to develop as a nation in Egypt, in the, in the cocoon 
and protective, uh, really it's the protective area of Goshen, which is really an amazing thing to study. We'll get to that a little bit later. And that's why the Joseph story is so important. The story of Joseph explains how they get to Egypt. So we're getting ahead of the story, but this is we're at a very important threshold here. God's disciplined Jacob. He has he's helped Jacob to understand who God is and what God's doing in his life. He's surrendering to God, so to speak. He's in the land. Now the question is, are the 12 sons of Jacob going to develop into the nation? Well, that's what we're going to find out. You already, you and I already know the answer to that because we know the whole Bible, but this is a really important point of the narrative. So Jacob does something else, and that's what verse 19 is so important. And the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, so Shechem is a city, a town, but also one of the families that lived there is named Shechem. And his, this, he is the son of Hamor. He bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his hand, tent. And he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. I'll say something about that in just a minute. Now, I just want to stress how important this is. Jacob has settled in the promised land. Now he buys a piece of land in the promised land. And he buys it from a family named Hamor, the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. And he buys it for 100 pieces of silver. We actually have no idea what that means. I mean, there isn't an accepted currency in the Eastern Mediterranean, you know, like dollars would work almost anywhere in the world. But we have no idea what that exactly means. Other than that, it's doubtful that it's coins, because coins weren't accepted, except in the Hammurabi's Babylonian Empire or in Egypt. So it's, we're just assuming that he just gave him the value that the, the, the owner assessed for the land in silver. And so he weighed out pieces of silver, but the exact value, we have absolutely no idea how to calculate the value. But the important, this is what's important. Jacob is buying land in Canaan. And he realizes the significance, Jacob, is establishing the significance of this. He names the place El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. Why did he use the name Israel? Why didn't he say El Elohe Yahoo? Because his, his covenant name is Israel. So it's, it's just really an important turning point. Two things. One, he buys land in Canaan. He now owns land in Canaan, just like his father, excuse me, his grandfather had bought land from the Hittites on which he established the burial place. Sarah was buried there. Abraham was buried there and so on. Now he, Jacob, is buying land in Canaan. And the second thing to note is he uses his covenant name, Israel. This is an important threshold that Jacob is crossing. And where the text is establishing that for us to make sure we understand, he's sinking his roots in Canaan, the promised land. But that is also the context for one of the most horrific things that happens in the history of the patriarch. It's his daughter, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, what happens to her, and what two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, do. It's pretty awful. <laughs> but the Bible says 
all over the text, the narratives. It tells the story of the heroes of the Bible, warts and all. It tells you the negative. It tells you the positive. It exposes sin for what it is and exposes righteousness for what it is. And so what we see here is something that's an ugly demonstration of the consequences of sin and what it can just roll through a family when things like this happen. Let's look at this narrative. We'll, um, we have to read it. Well, I guess we, if you want to, I can skip it. Can skip it? Okay. I, I mean, it, it, it's there, so God wants us to understand it. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, remember, she is the only daughter of Jacob. All the rest of his children are sons, as you already know. She went out to see the women of the land. Now, the women of the land would be Canaanites. But that language, that's really interesting. Uh, the language went out to see the women of the land could be a very negative, could have a very negative meaning to it. And we don't exactly know what that means, but it's, it, it speaks in a number of places in the Old Testament. When that phrase is used, women of the land, it's never in a positive context. So we really, we just don't know exactly what Dinah is doing. All we know is, women of the land, Dinah is out among the Canaanite women. What is she doing? Is she getting a pedicure? That's supposed to cause some laughter, but none of you got it. Is she out getting her hair done? I mean, we just, we just don't know, but it has negative connotations, but that's all we can say. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. Now, we were introduced to him up in verse 19. The, that family with which Jacob did the deal to buy the lands. This is the same family. They are the leaders, and the term that's used there, the prince, they're the political leaders. This is the political family, so to speak, that governs Shechem. So that tells us something. He seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. What one four-letter word would you use to describe what happened? He raped her. So this Canaanite Shechem leader raped Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife, which is not a nice way to talk about it, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, families arrange the marriages. And so Shechem, the guy who loves Dinah, he raped her, but he wants her now for his wife. He says, Dad, arrange so I get this girl for my wife. So what that meant is Hamor's going to have to go to Jacob. They're going to have to negotiate a bride price, price and all that stuff. But she's been raped. And the text says she's humiliated. Remember, she's a Jew. This is a Canaanite. This is not something that should have happened. If you go back a number of chapters, you remember when Esau took a Canaanite wife 
I mean, Rebecca and Isaac come unglued with that. This is not a positive development, but it's initiated by rape. What she was doing there, we don't know, but it has that negative. But the point is, we're at a very, very critical position for Jacob's family. What are they going to do? And Jacob heard that he had defiled, he, Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. That's probably not a real positive statement about dad, Jacob. He heard that his daughter had been raped. All his boys are out caring for the flocks. They're out away from the, from the land that he bought. They're home. He had a, a split level, you know, a three-car garage. You know, that's a really nice place he lives in. He's not going to say anything. So what you, you're introduced here to a little bit of now a characteristic of Jacob in his older years. He's quite passive. He's not the spiritual leader of his home. He's not the key leader. He should have taken action to defend his daughter. He doesn't do that. He holds his peace. He should, as a father in the ancient Near Eastern world, he should have been the protector and advocate of his daughter. He is not that at this point. Now the next verse. The sons of Jacob had come in from their field. Just remember, just all they were out with the herds. As soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and were very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So what do you see? You see a contrast between passive Jacob and his sons, who are indignant, angry, and making a moral, ethical evaluation of what's happened. Jacob doesn't do that. So there's a contrast there between the father who should have led, who had been the spiritual patriarchal leader of his family, he doesn't, he keeps his peace, and the sons. There's a contrast. It would seem because Jacob did not take decisive action as the spiritual leader of his home, that is the reason for the mess that happened. Because now Jacob's boys take over. Verse 8, but Hamor spoke with them, the them, plural, the sons, saying, the soul of my son Shechem loves, longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughter to us. Take our daughter for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell, trade in it, and get property in it. So now what's happening here is these people of Shechem and Hamor, the father, and Shechem, the son, they're making a pretty wide-range proposal to the family of Jacob. Arrange the marriage between Shechem and Dinah. She's been raped, but he'll do the honorable thing. He'll marry her, and we want him to marry her. But we have a much larger proposal for you. I've got lots of daughters. You've got lots of sons. You brothers, you intermarry with my daughters and our daughters because there's several extended family members here. But anyway, let's, let's have the two families merge, and, and you can dwell with us. The land will be open to you and buy more property. We, we are, our side business is real estate. 
we we want to get the commission for you buying all this property. So I mean, I'm embellishing this a little bit in terms of 21st century, but the idea here is wrong. Jacob's sons are not to marry Canaanite girls. So you see, you're starting to see a little bit of a slippery slope here. This is a really decisive, what is going to happen here? Shechem also... Are there other Jewish girls Well, that's going to be one of the interesting things that develops as we watch the sons. <laughs> and I'll, I'll get to some of that, if you're, if you're all right, I'll get to some of that as we get into some of the sons and how messed up that becomes too. But ideally, this is not what you want to see. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whenever you say, whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for, ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. Again, um, this maybe needs a little bit of an explanation. As the families arrange the marriages, in this case, just a marriage, but then potentially the other marriage, your sons, my daughters, etc. You set the bride price. Make it as high as you want. We would maybe call that a dowry, you know, although we don't practice that in the United States, really. But still, in many other parts of the world, that's still a part of marriage. Dowries are a very important part in ancient in the Middle East today. That's still a part of the Bedouin culture, much of the Arab culture. So what he's saying is not terribly unusual in the 21st century. But what is important is you guys set the price. Normally, the father says, here's my daughter, and here's the dowry that goes with it. Take it or leave it. This guy, Shechem and Hamor, his dad say, whatever you set that, we'll, we'll do it. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. <clears throat> the sons of Jacob, please note, it's not Jacob. It's the sons of Jacob. Answered Shechem and his father Hamor. Now, this is how the ESV translates this Hebrew word. Deceitfully. Does that remind you of... Anyone or anything? My mother used to say, the apple does not roll very far from the tree. The sons of Jacob are acting like their dad. Who was deceitful? Who was treacherous? And so the boys talked to Shechem and his dad, Hamor, but the Hebrew word is, you could translate that treacherously. But the ESV has chosen to translate it deceitfully. Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So the, the idea that we are supposed to understand at this point in the narrative is that the sons have hatched a plan. The sons have come up with a plan to get revenge for what's happened to their sister. Please note, Jacob is not leading this. Jacob has failed in his role as the spiritual patriotic leader of the clan. The sons are doing this. Jim, let's, it, draw, let's draw a principle. 
fathers are to be the spiritual leaders of their home and take the leadership. And if they choose not to do it, it can have horrendous consequences. And even in the face of danger in your life, what does it matter that you're not willing to take that position? You've compromised your faith, you've compromised your position, compromised your witness. Well, and I think, and this is one of the points that you see in a lot of the narratives, especially the Old Testament, when the father chooses not to be the spiritual leader of his home, the consequences are seen in the children. I, in another one of my classes, we're working through Second Samuel. And we're now, today, we're going to start with Amnon, who rapes his half-sister. What does David do? Nothing. And when David does nothing, who's an axe? Absalom. And creates, destroys the family, and creates a civil war in David's kingdom. Because David refused to act. Why didn't David act? My son just did exactly what I'd done. I took a woman that didn't belong to me. And he, he won't act. I, I can't, how can I do that to my son when I did the same thing? Well, he had been forgiven. He'd been cleansed. He should have, he should have taken his spirit. Like, my son Amnon did something wrong. I have to discipline him. He doesn't do that. And so Absalom waits. It's several years that Absalom will get the revenge. It's the same thing. You see the consequences. Fathers have an enormous responsibility in God's eyes. And if fathers do not take seriously that responsibility, the consequences will be seen in the children. Now, that's a principle. It, this and the one David are severe consequences, but absolutely horrible consequences. But the, the, that is really an important principle. God gives that authority, that responsibility. I should maybe use the word responsibility, because that's really what's important here. And we learn by negative example what happens when a father does not do that. And it has really significant consequences. Which is one of the reasons why in a country like the United States in 2022, we should be very concerned that the majority of children born in the United States today are born without a father. I mean, without a resident father, what I mean by that. That's a very, very serious issue. Even when there's two in the home, Well, that's right. I mean, it's just, it's a very, very serious development in our culture. And uh, when you look out 20 years, it's hard to see positive results of this necessarily development. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not condemning women who are single parents or whatever. But and this is one thing, Tony Evans, if you if you know that name, Tony Evans is so deeply committed to trying to preach the consistent message of what he his language is: kingdom fathers. What do kingdom fathers look like? What do kingdom husbands look like? He's written several books on this. He has one on kingdom fathers, kingdom mothers, et cetera. And it's, it's just an important concept that by and large, this is a broad statement, but by and large in our culture, you know, this isn't an important issue. Most people aren't talking about this issue. They're talking about other things that uh, uh, in, our, in our culture. But anyway. Do you know the name of that book? Uh, I, I think I by Evan, Dr. Evans, it's, I think it's Kingdom Fathers. I think that's the title of it. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I know the word kingdom is that. Kingdom family. He has one of them. Kingdom family. Kingdom men. Kingdom men. Thank you. Okay. Kingdom men. 
but uh, I mean, it's, I, I really like how Dr. Evans does, I studied under him when I was in graduate school, in my homiletics class, but you studied under him, he was my teacher. He was my homiletics professor. Um, but um, I lost my train of thought there. Well, anyway, let's get back to the text, okay? If that's okay with you. Actually, even if it isn't okay, we're gonna get back to the text, but anyway. <laughs> then he said to them, we cannot, then they said to them, they, the brothers, said to them, Jechem and his dad, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Now, that statement is a good statement. That statement is an accurate statement. But we just learned in the previous verse that they're acting deceitfully. So they have a hidden agenda with this. So what they're saying is true, but in saying that, they have a deceitful idea underneath this. And you're going to see if you haven't read this, you're going to see what it is in just a minute. Verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. So this preposterous idea that Shechem and Hamor proposed to the guide boys, they are now agreeing to this on one condition. You guys be circumcised. Now, this is really amazing <laughs> because that's a, that's a pretty serious condition. For grown men and older men, I don't know if you think of, think about that for five seconds, you understand why well, that's a pretty serious condition to be circumcised. But remember, Jacob's boys have an underlying reason for this. Continuing, verse 17, but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Their words plead to Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem which is extraordinary. Good idea. And the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, Shechem was. So as Shechem does, so the whole town does. Because he's such an important son. So what is he? I agree to be circumcised. I really want Dinah to me and my wife. I like your proposal. Verse 21. These men, I'm uh, sorry, verse 20. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city. Now, I mentioned this before, but let me remind you of this again. In the ancient world, all cities had wall around, walls around, sometimes two walls. But anyway, and there was always one major entrance to the city. It was a large gate, and you walk in the gate to the left and to the right of the gate are what are called gatehouses, large areas usually set off by rectangular shape. And this is where all the leaders of the town would sit. These are the elders of the city. Uh, if you ever go to Israel or the Middle East, you see ruins of lots of ancient cities, exactly what you see the main gate, and to the right and to the left, you see the gatehouse. That's what Shechem and Hamor have done. They go to the gatehouse. Here are all the elders of the city sitting. And what they're going to do is they're going to propose to these guys what needs to happen. 
Verse 21, this is what they say to the leaders of the city sitting at the gatehouse. These men are at peace with us. In my Bible, I wrote a little arrow and I wrote in the margin. They are indeed deceived. They've been deceived. Let them dwell in the land, trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? See, they're seeing this as a fantastic kind of Bill Gates opportunity for the expansion of our business. They've got enormous flocks and herds, and we start marrying, and their kids marry our kids, and we share, man, we're, this is going to be a great investment. Is the return on this investment, the ROI, is going to be fantastic. You agree to this little thing of being circumcised, right? And all, in verse 24, and all who went out of the gate of his city, listened to Amor and sent Shechem, every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Now, again, I, I tried to embellish this a little bit, but there's a lot going on here. Shechem and Hamor are not only thinking, you know, Shechem really loves Dinah and he wants her and all that. But they're thinking of the tremendous economic opportunity, the merging of these two clans. They're seeing a tremendous possibility of investment and growth and prosperity because of the intermarriage of these two clans. So they, they probably had PowerPoint presentations, all kinds of Excel spreadsheets <laughs> to show how this would be profitable for the community. And the elders of the city say, yep, great idea. They all get circumcised. Remember, we read in verse 13, Jacob's boys are acting deceitfully, treacherously. Now we find out why. Verse 25, and on the third day, presumably after they were circumcised, when they were sore, I don't have to explain why they're sore, do I? Okay. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. These are men who have been circumcised at all ages. They're sore. They're not ready, able, necessarily even willing to defend themselves, and they're slaughtered. Now, one of the things that just in terms of context, we're not talking about tens of thousands of men being killed. We're not talking about thousands of men being killed. We are probably talking about several dozen, maybe, I'm not even sure it'd be that high, maybe a hundred, but we're talking about so. Because remember, I mean, these aren't huge cities like New York City or Chicago or even Omaha. These are relatively small communities. The walled cities would not hold hundreds of thousands of people. Only Babylonian, a few cities in the ancient world did that. So again, you're not talking about an enormous number, but if you're not talking about five, it's wrong. So it's an ethically wrong thing for them to do. But here is the content. I should, I should say, here's the purpose of their deception. You're going to take the revenge by killing them all. 
And Simeon and Levi organized this. They killed Hamor in verse 26. They killed Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks. They took their herds, their donkeys, whatever's in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, all that were in the houses, they captured and plundered. My goodness. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making the stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and against me, and that me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Is there a particular pronoun that you note in Jacob's response? I, I, my, my. Self-serving concern. Like we saw with Jacob when he heard the news of what happened to his daughter, here we see the same response. Jacob is, Jacob is not commenting on the ethical nature of what has happened. He's only interested in himself. You follow me? Instead of Jacob saying to his sons, what you did was wrong before God, but perhaps because he had acted so deceitfully in his past, he's unwilling to sit in judgment of his son's deceit. And so, I mean, you have, again, chapter 34 is a horrible chapter. And it just, it, it, there's so many angles in which you can express the horror and indignation of what's going on. But keep your focus on Jacob. And you ask, what should Jacob have done initially? What should Jacob have done here? His concern is, my clan is so tiny. And he uses I, I, my, my, all over the place. And then his boys respond. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, that's not justifying what they did, but they're asking the ethical question. Dad, you didn't bring this up. You're only concerned about self-preservation. We are concerned about our sister's been raped, and you didn't do anything about it. And if you're not going to do anything about it, we are going to do something about it. This End of story. That's it. Is this a forerunner of why we've got the eye for an eye to limit the damages? Again, overwhelming damages here. Well, that's you're right. That's one of the reasons why. And, and no, that's really a good question, because what will happen in the Mosaic Law is the Mosaic Law is going to lay out a series of important ways in which you hand, with, with families handle vengeful situations. How do you hand, how do you handle vengeful situations? Well, the, the law is going to provide a whole bunch of ways in which this is to be, to be dealt with in terms of the law, in terms of answering and, and really following the ethical stipulations of God's law. What was, Simeon and Levi, well, really all the boys, but Simeon and Levi are the, the key actors. 
They're acting out of vengeance. They're acting out of personal hurt, not necessarily justice. See, vengeance and justice are not the same thing. And that's the law is going to the law is going to deal with both of these things and say you always do things justly because God is a God of justice. And vengeance is all the, the Levitical cities, the cities of refuge. All of these things will be incorporated into the law to deal with blood vengeance. In the American West, it was called vigilantia. And when Wyatt Earp comes to town, justice is established. Not vengeance. You know those great stories of the West. And what's the value of the wrestling? What's the value of what? What's the value of that prior event of wrestling with God and then this happened? Jacob's in process. He's a slow process. It makes you wonder. Yeah, it's just like, oh, the good can come from that. (laughs) But, I mean, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to excuse it. This, this is very much in process. Jacob is in process, but you see, this is this is what's frustrating. And I mentioned a moment ago in Second Samuel to another group. But this is the frustrating part about David. You just want to take David and grab him by the neck and say, "Have you not burned anything? How can you not deal with your son Adnan? How can you not do it?" How can you not say anything? How can you not do anything? The same thing with Jacob. Jacob, how can you not do what you're supposed to do as a spiritually of your home? Your daughter's been raped. You're not doing it. He holds his peace. What does that mean? He's not assuming leadership or we should assume. He has to be the advocate and protector of his daughter. He doesn't do that. So his son said, Dad's not going to do it. We're going to do it. And so Jacob's flawed character is his name, Yaakov, the heel catcher. And that sticks with him. And that's the instruction of that important word sequel in verse 13. His sons are acting like their dad. If dad's not going to do it, we'll do it. We're going to do it our way. Thank goodness. Were they right? They had to deal with this with their do- for, their, uh, for their sister's sake. But to kill the town, to wipe out the town, the men of the town, not the way to go. It doesn't say anything in motive other than you know the vengefulness. They also bounced a lot of property. Now, what became of the women? Did they marry them? Did they have wives or the women were slaves? Yeah, that's uh, Fred raising one of the possibilities. The, the, to answer the Bible's silent. We just don't know. We don't know. There are a lot of possibilities. They could have sold them into slavery, which may have occurred. There was a major slave trade that moved from up in what today would be Syria and all that down into Egypt. That Joseph is going to be told to Eastman like to take him down. So they could have and maybe did. In probability they did. They sold him into slavery. There is no evidence, at least as I can uh, recall, there's no evidence that there was significant intermarriage. They didn't, I don't think that's the case. But they, uh, I mean, it's, again, we're, we're not talking about thousands and thousands of men, uh, of uh, women and children here. We're probably talking about maybe a couple hundred, maybe even a little less. I mean, we just don't know. What, these are not large communities. So, um, it, again, it doesn't matter if it's just 20. It's, these are human lives. 
And it's just, um, if there is a main point to be taken from chapter 34, and it's always the narratives of the scriptures, what lesson do you learn here? What's the transcultural principle that you take from this chapter? Because you and I don't live in this kind of a situation where there's a little tiny community that, you know, one of the men rapes our daughter and we kill everybody in the town. That's, you know, that's kind of, but we do see, take note of the consequences when a father does not take his role seriously, when he does not accept the responsibility that he has. That's the main point. That's the transcultural principle that you take from this. That's a very, very important principle. And this is why um, God is a God of order. God is a God of, of structure. God is a God of assigning primary leadership responsibility. And God holds those leaders are always called to a higher standard in the Bible. Jacob is called to a higher standard as the father, as head of his clan. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. And you see the consequences. And the commonality of this today is, well, women are just as intelligent as men. It's not the point. The point is the responsibilities are different. The husband, the father, <clears throat> the leader, spiritual leader. And if he isn't, he needs to get there. That's exactly right. The, the, God's Institutions that God created, the family and the church, God assigns role responsibilities. He does not assign role responsibilities outside the family and outside of the church. There's nothing, there's nothing the Bible does not condemn a woman being a CEO of a corporation. But the Bible does say something about a woman being the spiritual leader of her home. Now, if the father's not the spiritual leader of her home, the woman's going to have to become the spiritual leader of her home. But the, the, the point is, God has, this is what God has said. He's given primary responsibility. And that is the, the words I'm using right now are about the most unpopular words you can hear in 21st century American culture. People don't want to talk like that. That's chauvinistic. <laughs> but that's the, that's the horrible reality of where we, what we live in. And it's very, you have to talk about this. You have to explain what this means. This is an autocratic leadership. This is servant leadership, where the father serves and leads by doing his family. He, he leads by taking the responsibilities and make sure the Bible is read, prayers, that we go to church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if the father won't do it, who is going to do it? Well, the mother's going to have to do it. And the mother doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. That's why we have hard time with our conversations. We don't have a common core of experience with people in the world. Most people haven't read this book. That's right. That's they don't right. even know what's in it. They don't want to know what's in it. Well, and we, this is the, the critical issue. We accept the Bible as the authority in our lives. And so if you're talking to someone that doesn't accept the Bible as an authority in your life, you have no common foundation on which to have a conversation. You, you don't. You, you don't have any, you have no common foundation to share. You have no ethical core. And that's the problem. The ethical core of American civilization is a whole. There is no ethical core anymore. It's every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. 
And it doesn't matter because the chief ethic of American civil, Western, all of Western civilization is autonomy, the pursuit of personal autonomy. And that has us utterly disastrous consequences. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, and this is why a, a passage like this teaches us a transcultural principle. It's really important. And you can seriously engage with that or ignore it. You know, I, I know someone who recently was incarcerated in jail. I called the chaplain because I knew this guy was over there. And said, Would you go in and talk to him? And he said, Oh, he said, I think I know who that is. And I go in there, he's got his Bible. And I, and so he spent some time with him, his daughter, and, you know, his daughter. I haven't met him yet, but I'm joining. And um, Sunday morning came, and the father's home now. And he said, uh, "Get up." She said, well, Dad, normally I sleep in on Sunday till 10. He said, not this Sunday. I'm going to church. <clears throat> and that was his leadership. And she yeah. said, I just love him. Wow. Good. All right, good. Are we done with 34? Any of you guys online? Do you have any questions or comments? Yeah, so this is Lyle Jones. Yes, Lyle. Uh, what should Jacob's response should have been had he was taking the role of a father? What should that have looked like? Well, I think that's a good question. And, you know, at one level, there would have been a couple of possibilities. But when we read in verse 5, Jacob held his peace, that means he did nothing. He immediately should have gone to the family of Hamor and said, you have done something that has shamed my daughter and my family. I am going to take her back, but you must pay for this. And there were various ways in which that could have been done, monetarily or some kind of a public humiliation of Shechem, who raped his daughter, but he does nothing. He should have taken the kind of leadership to immediately call the family of Shechem and Hamor, the, the leader of the clan, to account for what they had done to his daughter. But he does nothing. The passive character of Jacob is evident when the text says he held his peace. He did nothing. And so he, he, instead of defending his daughter and being the advocate of her daughter, his silence is utterly deafening. So you follow me now? In other words, yes, I do. you should immediately have confronted the family. This is a family confronting another family for the rape of the daughter. And because dad didn't act, the sons do act. Thank you. They act out of the motive of vengeance. I have another question. Uh, yes. I... You know, it doesn't seem like uh, Jacob has changed much since he wrestled with God uh, and became Israel. Uh, it didn't affect him very much so far. Well, uh, Woody, we were talking a little bit about that earlier, too, here in the class, that um, it does not seem as if Jacob is acting the way he should. But remember, and I said this, I think it was Fred who made that point, Jacob is in process, Woody. He's in the process of being transformed. You're going to see a much more positive aspect of Jacob in the next chapter, which we probably won't get to today. 
but uh, very much. But that's the only way I can respond to that. He is in process. Um, he is not doing decisively what he should have done, and he has to live with the consequences. He sees what happens to his family. I understand the process. Thank you. Yeah. Key word, isn't it? Hey, Jim. So they were in the land of Shechem. Is that what you're saying? They're in the land of Cain. Shechem is the town. You can see it on the map there on page 23. Yes. This is, okay. the, this is the community where Abraham had built his first altar in the promised land. Very important city to the Jews. Oh, okay. I mean, Jacob could have settled somewhere else, right? But he decided to... <laughs> Well, yes, and again, I, I, I said that earlier. I okay. think he chooses to go, he's in Sukkot when he gets into the promised land, and he goes west to second, because that's where his grandfather first settled and built okay. the first altar in the promised land. It's, it's a very important family connection. It's also a very important, you know, historic and covenantal connection, the Abrahamic covenant. So right. all that, I think, is in back of why he chose to settle and buy that piece of land in Shechem. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you. Okay. All right. Let's crack into chapter 45. Now, here, Woody, you see something positive about Jacob, okay? God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. Now, that takes us back to chapter 31. Because you remember, Bethel had been the Canaanite community called Luz, L-U-Z. And God met Jacob there. Remember the, remember the ladder that went up and down to heaven, angels ascending, descending. Remember that? God was standing at the top of the ladder and gave, renewed the covenant with Jacob. So God says, I want you to go back to Bethel. And again, you can, you can see where that is on the map if you're interested. So this is an important um, I guess I would say an important commandment. God wants Jacob. I want you to go back to Bethel. So Jacob said to his household, draw her with them, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Hmm. Hmm. Foreign gods. Does that bring some recollection in an earlier chapter. Rebecca, Rebecca, remember the gods that she took from her from late? Remember all that? What do we infer? They're still there. They're still there. But maybe that was from the people that just became their slaves. It, it could be. It could be, or they may have sold them into slavery, but it could be. But all the things that are a part of my clan that represent idolatry has got to go. It is probably primarily, Rebecca still had this stuff. But Ed, you might write, you may be right. It may be his servants, many of whom came from other Canaanite communities or even up in Patamarama or whatever, they may have had idolatrous practices too. It's got to go. God wants rich, I'm going to, this is, sounds a little bit uh, like highbrow academic stuff, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. This is ritual purification of the clan. We're going to Bethel. We're going to meet with God. Get rid of all this junk. 
ritual purification. And so, house of God, bait, Baal. Yeah, bait, Baal is Hebrew words. Bait is always house. Ale is one of the titles of God. So it's house of God. Now you can impress your Jewish friends. I know what Baitel means. <laughs> and purify yourselves and change your God. This is ritual purification. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, Baitel, so that I may make an altar there to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. Fantastic confession, isn't it? Fantastic statement from Jacob. It's a tremendous affirmation. He's in process, but he's, made, he's now exercising his spiritual leadership. He's exercising his spiritual responsibility. He's guiding and directing his family in the ways of the Lord. And he states, this is a God who answers me. This, by the way, in the Hebrew, this is in the present tense. This isn't answered me. This is present that answers me. He's continuing to answer me. And has been with me wherever I've gone, which is a wonderful statement of his faith. So they gave, they, again, the they is unnamed, which I believe at least Rebecca, but Ed's right, it may have been other servants and so on who had idolatrous practices. They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears hid them under the, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now, uh, I, I guess I'll comment on that. You'll notice the pronoun in their ears. Most expositors understand that there is referring to the foreign gods, not the people. Because we have found a number of these in archaeological digs. Often the idols had jewelry on them. And the, the, the assumption is these are the rings that are in the ears of the idols. That was just part of the idolatrous practice. It may have been the rings, that, but it, it, it's odd for Jacob to ask for the rings that were in their ears. Because, you know, if you take a, a woman's earring and say, I'm going to bury it, and that's your wife, she'll hit you over the head with, it, with, uh, with the pan that's in the kitchen. I'm being a little facetious there to break the tension of this room. So anyway, they do what Jacob wants them to do. He's the spiritual leader of his home. He wants ritual purification of the clan, and they do it. And they journey, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. Shechem to Bethel, you're going south. You're going in the south, southerly direction. So that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, it's almost 12 minutes of I've got to quit, but I want to stop with that. We do not know exactly what this means, but this we do know. God acted to protect Jacob and his clan because other Canaanite communities around Shechem could have taken advantage of Jacob moving because the most vulnerable is when you're moving and you have your flocks and you have your kids and you have your clan, you know. But what does it say? The text is the Hebrew phrase, the terror from God. We have no idea what that means specifically. It simply could have mean could mean that God put his protective hedge around Jacob and his clan. And the Canaanite towns that could have taken revenge because of what his boys did in Shechem, they didn't do it. 
point of verse 5, God is protecting Jacob's clan. As Jacob affirmed in verse 3, wherever I go, he protects me. Evidence, verse 5. God directed him to go to Bethel. They're heading south. In obedience, he does it. The text says God protected him. So tomorrow, we will pick up with verse, not tomorrow. Next Wednesday, we'll pick up with verse 6. Yes, I'm here next Wednesday. Next Wednesday, we have class. The following two Wednesdays, I will not be here. I'll be with my grandchildren. My son, too, but I'm really going to see, Peggy and I are going to see our grandchildren. Don't tell my son that. Why did, why did Jacob hide these things instead of destroy them? What's that? Why did Jacob hide these things instead of destroy them? Uh, Ed has to leave, so I'll come. That's all right. Sorry. Uh, that's a good question. I'll, I'll try to address that next week. Let me pray oh, here. Thank you, Lord. We've learned some, well, maybe it's been refreshed. And a reminder, a powerful reminder, a penetrating reminder of what happens when a father does not assume the spiritual responsibilities of his home. That's certainly one of the points of chapter 34. And we're amazed in chapter 35, the process, Jacob's being transformed. He does what is right. He assumes that spiritual responsibility and purifies his clan as ritual purification, getting rid of all these idolatrous, worshipful idols and stuff. So, Lord, we're thankful. We see the two sides of Jacob. He's very much in process. So, Lord, help us as we go our separate ways. We pray for your enablement for each one of us. We want to be strong men of faith who represent you well. Enable us to do that in Christ's name. See you next week.